pair of hikers from Rhode Island have been rescued after getting stuck in treacherous terrain on Mount Washington. At least one hiker expressed they were feeling symptoms of hypothermia. Officials tell us the hikers were brought to safety around 10 p.m. And thankfully, there were no injuries. This was no drill, but a real-life emergency deep in the White Mountains. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. So we're episode 22 here, so we've had a year's worth of drinking, Stomp. Um, how, how are you holding up? Oh, I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, I, I think I can make it to 23, maybe 24. I think you at this race, that, to be honest. But um, So we're going to talk about um, getting older here on the show. So do you know, Stomp, like, do you, if you look back, because you're no spring chicken do you look at like a particular moment and say like, wow, that was the moment when I realized that I was getting old? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, age is sort of a strange phenomenon and, and idea for all of us to com- contemplate. But um, I mean, for me personally, it was when I was in my mid forties, I had just ran my last and fourth Mount Washington road race. And the next day I was running around my uh, my typical loop in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And when I got back to my car, I sat down on my, my seat and my left hip locked up on me. And that ended up being, I was in my mid-40s, and um, that was the beginning of this saga, this orthopedic saga that I've been through for the last several years of uh, dealing with arthritis and things like that. So that was the moment that it, it kicked in like, ooh, Getting older, the joints are starting to act up, but I still had the mindset of an 18-year-old, <laughs> and today I still do. So physically, you know, orthopedically, things are changing, but my mind is still like a, just a little kid. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the same way. Like I've always, like, I, I don't think that I've matured much. Like I'm sort of in that 16 to 20-year-old mode, I think, with maturity, but I think definitely... For me, I look back at I was thinking about this before this episode, so um, I was kind mm-hmm. of thinking back to when my oldest daughter started driving, and I think when <laughs> when she pulled out of the driveway that first time when when she oh. had her license and I wasn't driving with her, I was like, wow, I'm really, I look, kind of looked in, I remember looking in the mirror and like, that was right around the time where like, I couldn't deny the gray hairs that were kicking in, so mm-hmm. I think for me, that was the the moment and now the kids just remind me of how old I am every day so I can't forget <laughs> oh yeah I mean it gets worse I mean I think when you have that that realization that you're getting older and things are you know catching up with you and and soon to surpass you in in a sense it gets quicker and quicker and quicker um, yeah well it's not all doom and gloom though because when you look at it, it isn't where we are, like, we're definitely staying active, so we don't have much to complain about here. But um, mm-hmm. but tonight, the reason I bring this up, Stomp, is tonight that we're joined by Martin Pisani, um, who's here to talk about the Fountain of Youth. So he's going he's gonna to help us out. Um, and Martin Pisani, hey. Yeah, yes. So uh, Martin is an <laughs> author. He's an entrepreneur. 
uh, an accomplished mountaineer. So he's got some good stories about some some far off places that I'm really curious about. Um, and he's also an avid white mountain hiker. Um, so he's here to talk about his book, which is called um, Secrets of um, Aging Well, Get Outside. So Martin's going to share his perspective on aging, wellness, fitness, and how hiking is the secret to a long and healthy life. So uh, I recently got a chance to read this book, and I really enjoyed Martin's perspective. So very excited to have him. And um, later on the show, we'll, we'll cover some recent search and rescue news, and uh, we'll, we'll do a little bit of White Mountain history, talk about uh, railroads. Um, so very excited tonight. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Great, great. So Stomp, um, sponsors, coffees, anything, any updates there for, for, for our audience? Buy Me A Coffee is active. And um, if you're in the mood to donate to the podcast, that would be fantastic. We're using this platform to offset our costs. And we have Reckless Brewery up in Bethlehem, which is our official sponsor for each show, and uh, this amazing place, great beer, great ambiance, highly recommended, um, Reckless Brewery in Bethlehem. Very cool. Yeah, I got to get up there. So we'll, we'll plan a trip for sure in the next uh, couple of weeks, Stomp. Any recent hikes for you? No, unfortunately, I'm a, a spicy Cheeto guy this week. <laughs> That's the part where you're supposed to go, what about you, Mike? <laughs> well, well the, I thought that was the part where you're supposed to say, wait a minute, what's a spicy Cheeto guy? No, no, I know what you were talking about from last week. So. But you always do that whenever I say like, okay, where'd you go for recent hikes? And you're like, I went blah, 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 blah. And you never asked me where I went. <laughs> you have to have had a listen to an earlier episode, but I did some research about the whole spicy Cheeto thing. And, uh, it's really interesting. I don't think we need to get into it, but uh, yeah. So I, I'm the spicy Cheeto guy. I did no hiking this week. Sorry. How about you, Mike? <laughs> oh, thanks for asking, Stomp. I appreciate it. So yeah, I've been uh, I've been busy. So um, really, I took a trip up to the far north. So I was in Pittsburgh and Dixville Notch, New Hampshire. Have, have you been there? Have you ever been up that far north? Not that far. I've gone up. Um, Maybe the the eastern side of the state on the main border up to Goose Eye. That, that's probably the furthest north I've been, uh, but not the western side. Martin, have you been have you been up to McGalloway or, or Table Rock up in that I've area? I've done Table Rock, Mike, and uh, spent some time back in the day at uh, in Dixville Notch. I love it there. It's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, I, I was. I was definitely pissing some people off because I was rubbernecking the whole time when I was driving up there, just because I, I have never been up there. So <laughs> I took. I took a Friday off, and I, I just was. I'm working on the 52 with a view and the terrifying 25 list, and I needed to get up there. And I was like, I'm going to try to get both of those hikes in in a single day because I, I just was pressed for time. So. I drove up and I hiked uh, Mount, uh, McGalloway Mountain, which is in Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, which is on the 52 with a view list. And that was number 51 for me. So I'm almost done with the list. Uh, but what an amazing, like, it's, uh, Martin, you probably can give a perspective, but like, it's it's not a, um, well, getting into McGalloway Mountain is more about the drive than it is the hike. Cause it's like a, maybe about a mile hike to get up to a fire tower and the ledges 
and whatnot. But like to drive in, you've got to go on this like forest or this logging road. And then there's another road that you have to drive maybe like 10 miles an hour for like six miles to get down. And eventually you get to this trail. Um, but McGalloway was, it was, it was a fun adventure. And, um, doesn't McGalloway have a slide? It has ledges. So it's like a, it's like a small on the Eastern side of it. It has like a, a ledges and then, yeah, it's like kind of a rock slide, but you couldn't climb up it. It would, you would need to like rope up. You would have to like, it's almost like a mini version of like cannon cliffs, but it's not not super big. Um, but It was fun. It was a fun adventure, but it was, I was just nervous about my car breaking down and being out there with no cell connection. But then, so I drove all the way up to McGalloway, <laughs> did that hike. I, I met like these three people that were hiking. Matter of fact, one of the, one of the people I met, I was saying, I was kind of joking. I was like, oh, I wouldn't want to be stuck out here. You'd be waiting a long time for like a, a car or a rescue. And she said, she was like, I actually had a recent rescue that I was involved, that I needed a rescue. So I was like, oh, you got to tell me the story. So she had gotten injured hiking Mount Tecumseh. So she's telling me the story. She's like, oh, yeah, I got injured. I couldn't walk. And she said they were able to get out to the ski slopes. And um, somebody that worked at Waterville drove like an ATV up and, and rode her down. And she was like, we were so happy because we didn't have to call like for a real rescue. They just rode us down on an ATV. So That's funny because that's how we generally handle the ski resort side of it if somebody is on that trail they'll send officers up on atvs and they'll pluck them out so i'm wondering if it wasn't an officer or if it was somebody from uh waterville yeah i don't know i don't know but i was laughing i was like oh that's a good that's a cool story i was asking her what was going through her head and she was like i was mortified like i don't want to she's like i didn't that point that's like a mile in there's a hairpin it goes then it goes straight up for about a mile and a half um, and at that point, you can walk out onto the ski slope and look down onto tri-pyramids and whatnot. It's a really neat spot, but that's where they go. They'll they'll try to get an ATV right to that corner. Yeah, yeah, that must have been where they picked yeah. her up. So, But it was kind of cool to meet them. That's and neat. Then, yeah, then I drove down from – so I was went to Pittsburgh, and then I drove to Dixville Notch, and I just pulled I, – I didn't do a lot of research on Table Rock, so I just kind of had to guess, and I pulled off at like this – like in the middle of Dixville Lodge, I just pulled off the road and there was a parking area and I found the trail. So Martin, when you did, when you did Table Rock, do you remember, did you do the, like the climbers trail or did you go like the longer hike where you got to go like two or three miles? I think I did the longer hike. Uh, my whole purpose, truthfully, it wasn't a hike. I just wanted to look down at the balsams from that spot because that's when I first noticed <laughs> the cliff. It's I was amazing. staying at the balsams and I went, oh man, that's kind of cool. I wonder if you can get up there. Yeah, yeah, and I actually, sure so there's a longer hike, which you must have taken, but there's also like a, they call it the like climber's trail. So I went up and it was, it's like maybe, I don't know, 600, 700 feet or something of climbing and it was pretty steep. Um, but then I got up on Table Rock, but I was pretty, I was getting a little dizzy being out there. It was a little freaky, but. Um, you know, I don't remember when the list started, Terrifying 25, right, or the, or the 50, I think it's on both. Anyway, there were no lists when I did it. I have to, I'm guessing 19 when I went up there. So I just didn't even think about whether it was terrifying or anything. It was just, hey, I want to see what the balsams looks like from that ledge. 
Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty cool. And you know what actually surprised me is I didn't know anything about the balsams. I've since done a little bit of research, but like I was looking down on it and I, I was kind of looking at it. So for the audience's sake, like Table Rock is in Dixville Notch. It is this sort of narrow, it's probably about six or eight feet wide, and then it drops down maybe about five or 600 feet. So it's really like, if you have vertigo, it's it's not a great place to be standing. But I was kind of clinging to the rocks and taking some video. And I'll post up some pictures on the, the show notes, but it overlooks this resort called the Balsam. And I think that is where they do the first presidential prime, or they do the first presidential vote when the primaries happen. Um, Oh, no, it's actually the first. First in the nation. First in the nation to vote. And they Status. there's like 27 people in the town. And um, I had always thought that it was like this nice fancy resort, but it's actually in disrepair right now. So it's in, not in disrepair, but it's not like you can't go there anymore. I think I well, guess they've been trying to redo it. Yeah, it's close to renovation right now. It, it was luxurious. You know, you know the history there of those. I don't know, 20-something grand hotels that were in New Hampshire, and I, I think 16 oh. of them have burned to the ground. That's one That's of the main ones. <laughs> for sure. And, and uh, Amazing it, it, history. in its day, it was grand, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it looks like it would be uh, amazing, but I was kind of looking down at it, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, there's grass going through the parking lot, and the swimming pool is not ready to go. But I think they're trying to get some investors to um, yep. to, to finalize the the repairs, but they're trying to get a ski resort and everything going up there. So it would be be really nice if they get that going. But um, it's a great trip for anybody that's interested. It's called Table Rock, Dixville Notch. Just uh, don't don't get too close to the edge. So Stomp, you got to get up there at some point. And um, well, talking about that edge, you're saying it was like eight feet wide. I mean, watching the video, it looked like it was three feet wide. And were you lit? I laughed because I all I could think about were the people that walk with their cell phones and fall down potholes in New York City and places like that. And all I was thinking was, Mike's looking at his phone as he's walking on this ledge. You know, in, we do talk about that on social media a lot. Like there is this trend of like these social media influencers that like just fall off cliffs. And it, like, it seems like there's a news story every week. But I think it could have been you. Yeah, I mean, Martin will talk about this, actually. So one of the things I do want to talk about with Martin is sort of the situal, the situational awareness that hiking <laughs> develops within your brain. And I do think that there is something to be said for people that, like, are out there frequently. Like, I, it's not that I wasn't not paying attention to the video, but I was much more attuned to, like, where I was with the rocks than I was with the video, but I definitely, yeah. my aunt and yeah, my mom periphery. like yelled at me on social media and they were like, you're going to fall and die. So, um, but it's, it, it's one of the more unique, um, places in New Hampshire mm -hmm. that I've been. Um, but other than that stomp, I've been busy. I was in on Mount Israel. So, uh, in mm -hmm. the, uh, Ossipee range, I, I just did a, a sort of a ride home hike and, uh, I, I did Israel in the winter time. So I wanted to do it in nicer weather. So I got up there and just did a, a sort of a Sunday afternoon clear my head hike. And then I just did a trail run up on Pleasant Mountain, which is right by my in-laws place in Maine. So I've been been moving around and then I'm, I'm gearing up for a, a Mahoosic uh, traverse in the next week mm. or two. So it should be fun. So Israel from the south looks north towards Algonquin Trail and Sandwich Dome and Jennings and... Try pyramids if you're really looking, but um, that's a neat view. 
Yeah, it's right. Like it literally looks right down the throat of where you live. It's like right, right into that uh, that area. Yeah, that's cool. And um, just a just a side note, quick before we move on, I was talking to uh, a friend that lives near Plymouth Mountain, and from the eastern side of Plymouth, there is a trail called the Mauglis Trail. Are you aware of this? This I, the reason I bring it up because it may be one of these these long trails that may have been abandoned or forgotten. The Mauglis Trail, M O W G L G L I S. We should do some research because there may be some room for people like Nobby or uh, Rebecca to dive in and check it out. So from the eastern side, no, I'm sorry, the western side of Plymouth. There are these old markers on the trees that are uh, maybe like two inches by four inches that have the picture of a goat on them. And um, they go all the way down to Cosby Mountain, which is near uh, Newfound Lake. So it uh, it looks like it may be a longer trail than I'm aware. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So so maybe you can do some research on that and we'll, uh, we'll yeah, report back. I do know there's a Mowgli's Trail on Mount Cardigan. So, but uh, maybe it's it's okay. different. Okay, that so that would really extend itself. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know, but um, why don't you do some research and report back, Stomp? Yeah, we'll do. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. All right, so we're going to transition into um, our first segment here, which is welcoming Martin. So, Martin, I want to talk about like a recent hike that you just did. Um, so I think you were down on the Appalachian Trail, right? Yeah, I went south uh, to the easiest part of the Appalachian Trail, roughly the halfway point. I was playing around Harper's Ferry, went into Maryland and into Pennsylvania. Pretty flat by New Hampshire standards, but interesting historically, and that's why I did it. I'm a Civil War fan, so uh, the part of the Appalachian (laughs) Trail that goes past there goes to some historic places, got a chance to see. Antietam and Gettysburg while I was walking around there in Mm -hmm. the 90 degree humid heat. But, you know, it was a good hike. I did about 10 or 12 miles a day for three, four days and uh, burned a lot of calories and saw some history. So, yeah, pretty good. Nice. Now, do you have like a, um, like, are you sort of goal oriented in that you're section hiking the AT or did you just pick that as a location to Yeah, I like Harper's Ferry. I'm not, I'm not doing the AT deliberately in sections uh if i do it i i don't know that i have the personality to do four months on the trail i get uh, i don't think i could do it but uh i uh i like parts of it and i uh, and especially the new england parts i've done most of the new england parts but uh but i really like harper's ferry and it's got some meaning for me because when my son did the at about 20 years ago i met him there and, and we spent some time there uh letting him recharge his batteries and i really got to like the area so it's great did you see a lot of through hikers or so the bubble is the so the bubble going south has not reached there yet and then the bubble going north is far beyond there at this point so i imagine you didn't see too many through hikers i saw one guy who was a, a northbound <laughs> and I, I stopped in at the, there's a office there of the appalachian uh, mountain club and i asked him about it and he said the bubble has passed everyone going north is gone and uh, south is also gone so yeah, it was uh, quiet from, from a thru-hiker standpoint. But you can see the town is set up to be, you know, very pro for thru-hikers. Places selling equipment and, you know, welcoming 
uh, hiker. Yeah, it's a great little town. It really is. It's historic. It's scenic. It's hilly. On the, it's the intersection of three rivers, so you got the water element there too. It's just a great place to be. Yeah, I got to get down around that area soon to do some college tours. So I'll, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be in that particular area, but I, I think maybe now closer to Asheville, North Carolina. But I'm, I'm interested in, in getting south and, and checking out sections of the AT. So that that's a cool hike. So, um, Martin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, a little bit about your career and just overall how you got into hiking and then um, – I want to transition into a little bit of detail too about your experience hiking in the White Mountains. Sure. You know, I'm a business guy. My my background is I'm a marketing guy and I've been a big corporate guy and now I'm an entrepreneur. I was born in Brooklyn, about the flattest place you can imagine. But my parents, also Brooklynites, um, had spent the years before I was born in the Alps. They, My dad was in the service and he just fell in love with the Austrian and the Swiss Alps slides, pictures, whatever. So growing up, I saw pictures of that. And then we moved out of the city up to Connecticut. And then of course, my father fell in love with, of all places, Franconia Notch. So from the mid sixties, we've been going up to Franconia, you know, doing the Clark's bear, bear thing, bear trading post and yep. uh, standing under the old man of the mountains, all that whole going through the flume. So I just, you know, to me, Franconia Notch and the White Mountains up there, it's my home away from home. It's home base. And I don't know that I've missed more than one or two seasons since the 60s up there. Uh, really, it's my, my favorite place to be when I need to chill. Now, when you went up there, was it was it in a tent or did you rent the house in that area? Or how, yeah, how did we, you start? Uh, I would say nine times out of ten, we were at Lafayette Place Campground. My, my dad loved camping. And uh, we love being out under the stars. And I think that's what all, you know, it, it just got into me. It's, it's second nature at this point. And I still go up every summer, uh, set up the camp in Lafayette Place and run up to Lonesome Lake and, and do, the, do all the routes off of there. You know, so it's, it's, maybe it's boring. I don't know. I just love it there. And I, I've done some of those hikes dozens of times, but I, I, just, I just love being there. You know, in, I talked about my book, and I'll, I'll mention the, the reason I, you pro, I don't know if you recognize the cover picture, but I'm standing on uh, Artist Bluff because I went up there when I was about six years old with my parents. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it just gets under your skin. Um, and uh, I suspect it will stay there. In your, you know, with the, the, uh, the hiking that you've done in the White Mountains, like you expanded over your lifetime, like you've actually done some legitimate le mountaineering activity. You've even been to Antarctica. So we'll we'll save those stories for a little bit later. But um, aside from just hiking, um, can you talk a little bit about this? You got a, some interesting backgrounds here. So you've been in marketing your most of your career, but can you talk a little bit about some of the companies you've worked for and, and some of the things you've done for, in your business career? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty eclectic and um Right out of college, I went to work as a marketing guy for uh, Jose Cuervo Tequila. So I'm, I'm kind of been in the tequila business since 1979. And then I, I've been in the music business, but most relevant, and it's kind of why I wrote the book, is I've also been in the fitness business as chief marketing officer of uh, two fitness companies. And um, started noticing um, the difference between workouts in a gym and the difference between what I knew was uh, available to people through hiking. 
and um, it, it just started playing with me over the years. And so, yeah, I'm still a business guy. I'm an entrepreneur, actually, I'm chairman of a fitness company right now, and uh, we're doing some interesting stuff. But um, the consistent message for me is I'm, I'm very attuned to the anti-aging aspects of fitness, especially hiking. My company and my avocation and the book are all about the physiological benefits of hiking. And that's what's really drawn me. I, I kind of made it a mission. I, you know, I, even though I'm still in a couple of other businesses, I, I see what I'm doing right now in the fitness and anti-aging area is kind of what I'd like my legacy to be. It's uh, it's uh, it's very important to me. And I, you know, I, I just turned 65. Um, the summer was the 50th anniversary of my first climb on Mount Washington with my dad and my brother. And, um, you know, you, you kind of, you're talking about when you first realize you're aging, you know, it's been a while. I, but on the other hand, I'm, I'm very much into resisting the fact that uh, I'm aging. I really believe that you can um, delay physical and cognitive aging through fitness and our perception and our thinking about what we're experiencing <laughs> what we're experiencing with, with aging is, is in the process of changing you know a generation ago 65 was old you should be retired um and i don't know if you've noticed it but there was an 80 year old guy who got to the top of mount everest and there's a guy who just did rim to rim on the in the grand canyon who's 84. i mean if you i believe it's what what's in your head matters and we were kind of programmed to slow down in your 60s a generation ago. And if you just tell yourself that you don't have to do that, you can actually stay active. And in the process of doing that, age better and live longer, happier, healthier, be fitter and be healthier. You know, to me, the key thing is what, what fitness provides you is it's kind of a resist, resisting the, the maladies of aging. All the things that, you know, create death and decline can be delayed through fitness and there's nothing better than hiking for doing that yeah and i've had a couple of aha moments where i've been out um in hiking and been exposed to some some people that i thought were much i, I sort of I, I came away from that experience feeling feeling like wow there there's possibility here and one one experience was just sort of the exposure to I forget this guy's last name, but his name is George, and he runs the Mount Washington Road Race. So Stomp and I have talked about this multiple times, and Stomp knows who I'm talking about. But George has, you know, I think he ran Mount Washington, the Mount Washington Road Race, up until he was 99 years old. Um, and then the other sort of aha moment for me was the, f I think the first time I hiked out to Bond Cliff, I met a lady, and I was talking to her, and you know, she looked like she was in her mid sixties. Nice lady, and you know, somehow we got to talking, and she had thrown in that she was like eighty four years old or something. So mm -hmm. I, I, I've had those experiences on trail, and obviously, my first re—I think my first reaction when I see those is, "Wow, I hope they don't kill over and have a heart attack." But then, when you kind of think about it a little bit. It sort of does say like, you know, there. It, it sort of does hit you to say like, this is possible. It's just, I think one of the things I'm curious to hear from you is like, how do you get there? Um, Cause I'm, you know, in my sort of, I'm getting close to 50 now. And I think, you know, I'm definitely starting to think about aging a, a lot more than I used to. Actually, so, all the research I've done says late 40s, 50 is about when your mind starts to change. So you're right at the perfect age for rethinking all that stuff. But, you know, you mentioned the aha moment. And I, you probably remember in my book, I talk about it. I, I was training 
And I used to use Mount Washington as a training ground for bigger mountains. Once I mastered Mount Washington, it just became, you know, a great way to get 4,000 vertical feet in or 8,000 if you did it twice in one day. So I would, I probably been up at a hundred times at least. I was about 33 years old, feeling my oats. I had just pretty much jogged up Lionhead Trail, turned around, came back down. I was on the rock pile and I look ahead and I see somebody running up over the top of Lionhead. I'm literally pretty fast paced. And this is before trail running was even a thing. You know, there's just a guy running up the hill. Yep. And I'm looking at him, dumbfounded at how fit he was, because I thought I was the, you know, the cock of the walk. And here's this guy jogging up the hill. And as he got to me, my jaw dropped because he looked old enough to be my grandfather. And I found out when he stopped and said, hey, he was 75 years old. And here I am, 32, thinking I own this mountain, and he's running uphill. And I said, hey, how are you doing this? And he gave me the beginnings of this journey I'm on. He said, you know, I live just down the street. I've been doing this two or three times a week for, like, years. And it's the fountain of youth. He, that's what he said. And he said, I'll catch you later, son. And he just went up the hill. And I'm looking over my shoulder at this 75-year-old guy jogging up the rock pile. And I... My mind was totally blown, totally blown. I'd never, I wasn't thinking about my grandfather at the time. He could barely walk up a flight of stairs. And um, so, yeah, uh, it, it's got me to thinking about how that's possible, why, and can you actually do something about it? Can you take charge of the way you age? And I almost, not deliberately, but it grew on me. I made it kind of like a mission. I was happy that I could be doing it for that long if I managed to. But I really wanted to know why and then how you could help other people to do that as well. And that's that's the reason I wrote the book is that guy. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've seen more and more of those older folks really getting out there and, and getting it done And the more I hike. So um, I'm sure that people listening here have had their own aha moments and experiences interacting with folks on the trails. So I do want to get into some of the themes on the that you cover in the book. But before we get into that, I think you've given a good overview about sort of your perspective on the White Mountains. Um, but I always ask this question to people um, whenever they're on the show is, have you ever been sort of in a situation where you feel like you, you came close to needing a search and rescue or have you been involved with a search and rescue before? Well, I mean, I've twisted an ankle numerous times out there, but I walk it off. Um, so no, personally, I've never needed a, a search and rescue. Although I have to tell you, being part of your uh, Facebook group, every day I think I'm I'm overdue. I'm going to be the guy in the in the getting carried down at some point. But I'm keeping my fingers crossed I'm not. Um, and I'm taking a lot of precautions to make sure I'm not. But yeah. you know, I was actually just accidentally involved in a search and rescue three or four years ago. I was, and it was. February 2016, because I looked it up today because I knew you were going to ask me about it, yep. um, on Frankenstein Ledge, playing around on the ice up there. And uh, just some guy took about a 10-foot fall and broke his leg. And uh, he managed to limp down to the trestle at the bottom of Frankenstein Ledge where the tracks are. And then um, someone called in for some SAR, and I helped carry him out. And uh, it was great. It was, uh, well, not so great for the guy, but it was really interesting to see that in action. And I was really impressed with the professionalism, the speed, the strength, the whole. It just made me feel really, really good about uh, being in the White Mountains and how professional that was. And now watching what, you know, you, we're all following along on Facebook. It's a magnificent thing that that's there. And uh, I'd love to see it better supported. So, good, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so that's cool. So you got this. You got a little bit of a vibe of what I've never. So Stomps on search and rescue. I'm not on search yeah, and rescue, yeah. so I've never got the chance to sort of get involved in it. And Stomps described the. I mean, Stomp, you talk about how how it is to carry somebody on a litter, but it's 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 probably a good experience for anybody that's been hiking to sort of get exposure to what it takes to carry somebody out, even if it's not a long distance. Yeah, like Chris said last. Uh last episode just put 60 pounds in your pack and walk around for a while (laughs) but you know it's funny the facebook vibe is sort of critical of i guess our fascination with the accidents out there and how the rescues and all that stuff on the other hand what 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 drew me to what you guys are doing uh, on facebook is maybe you don't know this exists but in the 70s or 80s, for a long time, there's a periodical that still comes out occasionally called Accidents in North American Mountaineering. And every climber subscribed to it because of the idea that you could learn from other people's mistakes. And so that's what pulled me into your group at the beginning was I, I, I thought learning what's going on up there, not being snarky about it necessarily. Sometimes it's deserving of some snark. But on the other hand, I, I see it as a learning experience. You know, you get smarter and better about being out in the wilderness when you see what other people have done and and, and how you can avoid that, you know, that happening to yourself. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, I've definitely evolved over time. Like it used to just be sort of a joke, like, oh, let's look at those people that got in trouble on the mountain. But exactly what you said is like, let's, let's take a look at this. Let's, let's put a little bit of data collection behind it and analyze how, you know, what, what themes pop up and are there ways that you can look at those themes and say, okay, you know, maybe I can, sh- I can bring a splint with me to deal with lower leg injuries, or I Absolutely. can ensure that I've got an extra headlamp just in case I run into somebody that doesn't have a headlamp. So, um, it's, it's valuable. It's sort of like, it, sometimes it can be depressing when you, uh, fixate on it a little bit, but it's, it's a fun, fun area to, to think about, especially if you're an avid hiker. So, but, um, uh, Martin, I wanted to get into a little bit about what led you to, um, to write this book. But before you get into that, I just, can you define for the audience what you view as an anti-ager? What exactly is that? And then maybe if you could just transition from that to talk a little bit about what led you to write the book. Yeah. Anti-ager is a person usually about baby boomer age who is defying aging by staying fit and living an active, uh, vital lifestyle years beyond what the mainstream thinks is possible. Um, I have a business colleague that is 85 and still goes into the office every day, sharp as a tech. Um, I have my entire company, my fitness company, half the people are above 60. Entrepreneurs working long hours, building a company. Um, And I go to a conference every year. I was the keynoter this year at a thing called the Functional Aging Institute, which is a group that specializes in training trainers to train people above age 50. And that's every single person there is an anti-ager. It's a, it's a remarkable group of people who are developing techniques and lifestyle elements and nutritional elements to age younger, to basically stay active and vital as long as possible. And it, you know, it's not just about lifestyle. The truth is the fitter you are, and maybe you know this, the number one reason people go into financial distress in their late years is illness. The fitter you are, you're able to offset all kinds of things that 
create financial problems and healthcare problems. So there's a financial benefit to being fit and not getting sick in, in numerous ways. It's the best preventive medicine there is. And, uh, and, and as far as fitness, as far as hiking goes, um, as far as I'm concerned, fitness is safety. And you always want to be safer. You, know, you always want to have that extra little gas in the tank if you need it. You want to be strong, stronger than you need to be. You don't want to be crawling out of your, your, your adventures on your knees to get to your car. You want, you want to give yourself a little bit extra. And so fitness is safety. Got it. And one of the things you wrote in the book that I found was interesting, and it sort of it hit home to me, was you've, you talk about this theory of aging where you want to live long and die fast. So it sounds a little bit morbid, but it does make sense. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, not only does it sound morbid, the actual name of it is called compressed morbidity. Yep. So what that basically means is if you manage to stay fit and active and vital and don't go into the normal decline of aging where you get sick and you're in and out of hospitals, if you manage to avoid that through fitness, what happens is you know, you're 99, you're eight, nine in your 90s, and then you get pneumonia and you die in three days. And that's a much better way to go to me than to linger for a long time in a, in a d- diminished state. Um, my, you know, in my two parents, they both were smokers, and they went through the last 10, 15 years of their lives. It was, was not a good thing. They were in and out of hospitals, uh, surgeries, um, expensive procedures, uh, time-consuming, uh, emotionally consuming for everybody. Yet on the other hand, compressed morbidity, you have a happy, involved, vital life for longer years. You're not spending all that money on doctors. You're not involving your family. And then you just drop dead. And that's the, that's the way I want to go. You know, you just, you don't linger around. Um, and, you know, you, you really have no way of knowing how many years you're going to get. I mean, I, I'm constantly reminded, you may recall this, maybe you guys are too young, but the guy who wrote the complete book of running, Jim Fix, which created the jogging phase, died of oh, a heart yeah. attack at age 50, right? So, I mean, this guy was super fit. So you just never know how many years you're going to get. You know, and, you know, frankly, you can get hit by a car or I could, you could slip fall on your stairs in your house tomorrow but i intend my my goal is to to not retire until i'm 80 and to keep walking uphill until i'm older than that i don't have any plans to slow down and i want to make sure that i'm not only having fun and being active but i'm productive because i because the reason for that is if you stop all that stuff being productive working i think you go into decline haven't you ever seen anybody who says i'm retiring at 63 and then all of a sudden, you see them a year later, and they're, they just seem slower. They seem like they're just not as sharp as they used to be. And that's because they're not using their brains anymore. And they're probably moving less. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. But actually, before I get into that stomp, you're, you know, you're as a physical therapist, you're exposed to a little bit of this sort of on the, on the end of like, the, so Martin's idea, and I think it's it's a good one, is that like the more physically fit you are, the more you can be preventative. You know, the better you'll recover when you actually do get injured, but also it avoids sort of that long decline. But like, what do you, what are your thoughts on this stomp? Do you does this resonate with you? Yeah, there are multiple factors: diet, uh, genetics, um, environmental influence, whether you've been exposed to environmental toxins and whatnot, but um, for the most part, keeping active is the key uh, denominator in terms of uh, health and longevity. I mean, as a PT, 
I will dissect somebody's gait pattern if they're if they're shuffling their pat their step length. There's there's research to show that if you have a full step and you're not shuffling, then you're going to live longer. I mean, so activity is key, uh, but there are multiple factors that influence that. Yeah, and Martin, you're. Um you know, one of the other things that I found interesting was your take on retirement. So I'm sort of, I, I would probably term myself as sort of pretty typical as I'm like looking at my 401k, looking at 65 and saying like, okay, I'm going to retire. Maybe I'll move down to Florida, come between Florida and New Hampshire or whatever and stop working. But like you, I think very early on in the book, you say like, don't do that. Like keep, keep working, keep in, engaged. And it sounds good. But like, uh, you know, I'm in the sort of the corporate world myself, and it, it, I don't know if I can hold on for much longer than 15 years at the pace that I'm doing when it comes to work. But can you talk a little bit about your view on retirement and and maybe yeah. give your perspective on, you know, you're hearing me basically say, like, I can't I don't know if I can keep working after 65. What, you what know, do you Mike, say? When, to I say when I say don't retire, I don't mean don't change your career. I don't mean do the same thing you did when you were 50. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a lot of thought being given now, and there's actually some schools cropping up to teach people in their 50s and 60s how to reinvent themselves for their 70s and their 80s. So a lot of people turn to consulting. I, you know, if you have a hard physical job, like my dad was a fireman. Oh yeah, I don't I don't blame him for retiring at 60. It was tough, but if you have a desk job, um, you're you're not physically wasted. Um, so you can do other things. You can become a consultant. You can write a book. You can. There's a lot of things you can do that don't, that aren't the nine to five grind of corporate life, which I know well. I could, I kind of did it myself. I became an entrepreneur. I, you know, I, I used to uh, spend a hundred plus nights a year in a hotel traveling on six continents when I was a corporate guy. And yeah, that burns you out badly. And I did burn out. And you know. It, it contributed to actually a period of time riding. I wasn't very active and I gained about 40 pounds and I was miserable and wasn't hiking, wasn't walking. And actually uh, an attempt to do a hike where I really crashed badly convinced me that what I had to do was get back on the, get back on the wagon and uh, start walking again. So yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to maintain that level of intensity and activity for a really long time. So you go through ebbs and flows and then, you know, but um, by not retiring, you stay, by being physically fit, you are empowered both physically and cognitively not to retire, to keep being productive. And I think it's a giant waste of time that people will get into their 60s and not use all that experience in some productive way and just call it quits. Because, you know, right now I, I feel like I'm at the height of my powers. I'm still physically active and I've got 40 years of business experience to apply to solving problems. That's kind of a good thing that didn't exist a generation ago because by the time you were 60, you were put out to pasture. And, you know, some big corporations are still doing that. You know, they're right now they're, they're looking to, to wean themselves of people above 55, actually. And uh, so that that's actually creating a whole new movement of entrepreneurship and people who are above 50. And uh, we're going to see that in the next generation. A lot of people my age and older are starting companies and starting new businesses and, and creating new careers. So what's your take on um, the new trend for these ultra events like Spartan and this and that? Because what I'm seeing as a PT is 
increased injury, increased uh, wear and tear. I think a lot of these folks may be very well headed towards um, functional disability because they're overdoing it in their early years. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I have a lot of friends who were marathoners in their 20s and 30s. Every single one of them has got a hip replacement or a knee replacement. Some of them died too soon. I think there's overdoing it with high mileage. Is is uh, I, I think there's some research that shows that that is not a longevity um, factor. It is a longevity denier. And yeah. I feel the same way actually about trail runners. You know, I. If I were going to reinvent myself, I'd want to be an orthopedic surgeon just specializing on replacing the <laughs> hips and knees of the trail runners who are out there. I mean, you know, you know how brutal that is, right? But you know oh, how yeah, much sure. stress you put on yourself running downhill? Oh, my God. Those guys, yeah. some of those people are going to need hips and knees way sooner than, than, than they think. Yeah, it is funny that you say that because that is and, – and Stomp, we've talked about this before, but like for me, I was a – reasonably competitive runner and i had all these ideas around like all right i'm gonna run boston qualifying times and like i had the speed to do it but my problem when it came to marathons was that i i would break down in the training so when i had to do those 16 to 18 mile training runs at 7 15 pace like i could do it a couple times but then i would break down and i think that's one of the appealing things when i when i did that first hike to Glen Boulder and I realized like, oh wow, hiking gives me sort of this like energy and I can, you know, the list will allow me to sort of be somewhat competitive around hiking. Like it sort of scratched that itch. And I definitely think I had gotten injured too many times running. And I definitely think that like my involvement in hiking is what has stopped like the IT band and the Achilles tendonitis and the plantar fasciitis that I was dealing with all the time when I was running, like that all went away when I slowed down and started hiking. So I do agree that like, you know, these people that are super competitive ultra runners, like I, th- I think they're just, they, sometimes they can push it too much. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Martin, one other thing I wanted to talk about, cause this is something that like, it, it really is concerning to me. And I see this like from family and friends and I see it like sort of culturally as well as one of the things you also talk about in your book is sort of this perspective about how people think that there's a pill for everything. And they think that like they can magically sort of shortcut their way into healthy lifestyle. And, you know, clearly like hiking is an activity where there's no shortcuts. You've got to go uphill. But can you talk a little bit about your perspective there and, you know, what what yeah. you think is um, it, going on with that? It's troubling, Mike. I, I, I look out there and I see people always looking for that shortcut, thinking there's a pill for everything, not willing to put in the work to prevent things from happening in the first place. And um, fitness is the ultimate preventive medicine, right? And one of the things we're trying to do with our company is to reinvent fitness as upstream preventive healthcare. And when I say upstream, what I mean is this, the current preventive healthcare business isn't really preventing anything. It's it's not curing anything. It's it's maintaining things. Like for instance, if you have high blood pressure, the medication for high blood pressure doesn't cure you. It just moderates it a little bit. Whereas losing 50 pounds and getting your cardiovascular system geared up, that's a cure. That's prevention. And that same that that same approach applies to almost every aspect of 
of, of physical health. Uh, cognitive decline can be delayed and reversed through fitness. Cardiovascular problems can be delayed and reversed. And you know, in this era right now, the, the funny thing is, it's not getting enough publicity, but I think if you think about the comorbidities of the COVID problem, um, people with multiple comorbidities were more susceptible to COVID. People who were fit and, and didn't have cardiovascular problems and were not obese and, and did not have high blood pressure, Martin, Martin, we don't want to get the podcast banned. Okay, okay. you got to. Yeah, okay, it. I won't go there. But you know, I'm I'm kind of I, I'm I don't I'm kind of down on where healthcare and medicine is right now because I believe we should be focused more on prevention. And I I I'm my company and my my team we're trying to play a role in getting people to see that you can prevent almost all these things through lifestyle choices and being fit and moving. I really appreciate that. I mean, honestly, I, I sort of came into this as I'm in the confessional now. I came into this sort of skeptical, like, okay, where's this conversation tonight going to go? And uh, just the current climate everywhere has just been so toxic. Um, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. That's awesome to hear. There, there needs to be more of that, just natural health, you know, whether it be vitamins and health and getting outside and exercise. You just don't hear enough of the natural approaches to building up your immunity and everything else. And uh, that's really great. I appreciate yeah, that. that. That's the angle. And, um, you know, I, I'm sorry if I turned negative, but um, I, I think it, these are choices, individual choices people make. And I would like to figure out ways. And I think some of this is, uh, you know, like you, you wanted me to talk a little bit about shortcoming to the fitness business. Some of this is uh, the fitness industry has turned off more people than it's turned on, believe it or not, because it's chased them away from fitness. Uh, it's made it hard for some people who need it to join. And that's one of the reasons I'm high on hiking is because, you know, there's no social pressure. There's no... Um, there's no judgment going on that, uh, you know, in hiking. Technically, you're out there in the woods by yourself. But, you know, you go into a health club and you're being stared at and you're being looked at, a trainer's evaluating you. There's a lot of judgment going on. And that's one of the reasons people don't join is they don't want to be judged. They don't want to yeah. be looked, viewed. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so true because, like, I, I, I mean, I've definitely, you know, I've had gym memberships in the past, and you know, that it's, it's you, you pull into the parking lot, you see people getting in and out of their cars, you sort of make assumptions about sort of their social economic status, you take a look at their, you know, their physical fitness, and you'd make assumptions. The beautiful thing about hiking is that most of the times, like, yeah, you see people in the trailheads or whatever, but like nobody that stuff all goes out the window because you're all sort of on the trail and you know nobody knows what you do for a living or what you know what your sort of political persuasion is or what your um you know your other interests are it's just a common sort of appreciation of nature and you know even people i know that are like uh, I, i've known for a long time like i don't know a lot about them outside of just hiking so it's been it's been great that all those other societal sort of impressions are out the window, but like in a gym, they, I feel like there's sort of there's sort of a hyper focus on it sometimes. Yeah, I think it, it's gotten a little bit too much. You know, I used to do a, a talk in fitness conferences that Arnold Schwarzenegger did more to hurt the fitness industry to help than help it because he made a lot of people who were not uh, who just didn't get into the big grunting. Uh, weightlifting kind of lifestyle and didn't like hanging around that crowd. And the image that he 
projected, chased a lot of people away who were after a different kind of fitness. Um, and so, but fortunately that's changing again, you know, active agers are playing a role in doing that because they, they, they're seeing through that and fitness is now changing from weightlifting to a thing called functional fitness, which is a much more, um, much more useful kind of fitness actually, especially as you get older. Yeah. And you're, one of the things I did want to talk about is there was a moment in your book and you touched on this earlier where you had put on some weight, you were sort of in that corporate grind and you know you tried to go for a hike and you just sort of hit the wall and i i had a moment like that in my early 20s which motivated me to get back into running my moment sort of was a, sort of a self motivation to say like this is who i am and this is what i'm going to do your explanation in the book around what motivated you is sort of you you pulled sort of from within your own past experience to say i'm going to get back to who i was how do you it, get that motivation onto your friends or your loved ones if you if you're looking at them and saying you know what you're going down a path of you know where you're gonna you're gonna live a painful life if you don't get back into some level of fitness like i i think some people just sort of have an inherent sort of drive to make it happen but how do you how do you motivate others to want to get fit if they're not in a place where they need to be i think that motivation is is different for everybody it's hard to have one answer to that, but a lot of it has to do with setting small little goals. Um, if you set a big goal, like if you're going to go from unfit to, I want to climb Mount Everest in two years, you're you're going to find it's harder than saying, hey, you know what, I'm not fit right now, but I want to be able to run a mile in a, in two months, and set little little baby step goals and just keep increasing them. The good thing about this. Um, quantitative self-movement, you know, Fitbits and Apple Watches, is it's a good way to measure yourself against yourself. And that's a good way to set little goals. So, you know, baby steps, little goals, that's that empowers you. If you can increase your running speed or your distance by 10% a week or 10% a month, you've accomplished something and that feeds off itself. And as you go down that path, you feel better each time. And at some point, those endorphins kick in and you, you want more. And that's the progression from walking to uh, hiking smaller trails to then wanting to hike bigger hills, wanting to do the 4,000 foot peaks and maybe wanting to go beyond that. You know, it builds layer by layer by layer. Especially as you're getting, you know, up in years, you know, you, you know, sometimes it's possible for an 18 year old to set very high goals and get there very fast. But um, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about middle aged people who are maybe gotten themselves into a rut. And you just can't uh, pull, you just can't flip on a switch. And now, you know, in some cases, a trauma is that switch, though. In some cases, it is the recovery from an injury or a uh, a, a cardiac cardiac incident or a friend going through an incident. Sometimes there is a switch, but more often than not, it's it's a subtle process. And sometimes it's hanging out with friends. Sometimes it's setting a goal that you want to see that view you saw on Facebook for yourself. I see that happening a lot now. So it, it's hard. But I, I, my my recommendation as a as a coach and my my I have a lot of personal trainers I work with. Um, it's all about taking small steps and gradually turning the volume up and, and building your confidence. And that feeds you, that feeds off of itself. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, as much as people sort of get down on social media and they get down on sort of list hiking in the, the New England area, I do think that having these 4,000 footers and the 52 with the views and the terrifying 25s and the, yeah. the social media groups, like you said, I do think that it's sort of, it's that carrot that you can dangle out in front of people to say like, okay, if you want to be part of that club, you know, it doesn't really matter what motivates them. It's the fact that, like, if they if if it does appeal to them, it's a good thing. So yeah, you get a patch to put on your pack, right? I mean, that's yeah. a, kind of a goal for some. People. Yeah, exactly. And that patch may equate to an extra five years of living. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Couple of other things I wanted to ask you specific about the book. Um. One other area that you had. Um, sort of talked about was this, this concept of getting outside your comfort zone in order to grow. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the comfort zone is easy to, to get lulled into, right? It's safe, it's comfortable, it's on the couch, you got Netflix, uh, and uh, you're not, you don't feel threatened. I, I just, I've never, never really not been in a period uh, when I didn't really want to challenge myself to do better or more. And so I've gone through periods where I keep pushing it and pushing it. And in the book, I talk about a concept of a crucible. If you actually take this concept of getting out of your comfort zone into a place where it's either very risky or very challenging, you're, it's like trial by fire. You're reforging yourself into something new. And when I was in my 20s and 30s and even 40s, I did that on a regular basis. And, you know, that that's when some of my riskier mountaineering adventures came in. I was deliberately looking for ways to practically kill myself to make myself a better version of me. And you see that now, like a lot of extreme athletes are doing that. I mean, I, it, it, people have taken it to levels that I would have thought were impossible in terms of challenging themselves and you know, breaking out of the comfort zone and uh, going through this process of trial by fire in a crucible. It's, uh, it's an interesting growth process. And of course, it, you know, you can get injured and people are getting killed doing it. But um, if, you, if, you, if you learn how to do it properly, um, and, and, and add skills layer by layer by layer. It doesn't seem as risky to, when you're doing it. You know, like you were talking about the mental focus to walk out on Cable Edge, right? Cable Rock. Yeah. Well, you can you can teach yourself how to do that so that you're comfortable doing it. Whereas a, a rookie who had never done it before walking out there, you'd be vertigoed off the cliff, right? Uh, so you, you can layer by layer teach yourself to exceed your limitations. So this is this is where I. Um... I struggle a lot. Like, um, let's take an individual, individual like, um, Alex Honnold who free solos El Cap, you know? Um, I absolutely appreciate the fact that he was a master. He was, uh, prolific. He, he, he got every finger hold, every toe hold, everything possible and did this for two or what, two or three years and nailed it. But then you have that stark contrast about, you know, there's no room for error, just one wrong uh, calculation and you're done. Uh, I, I, it's amazing to me. I mean, that's that's sort of where this goes. You know, it's like people are pushing it to the limits, but there's a, a high price to pay if you make a mistake. Yeah, no question. When you're when you're talking about those giant vertical walls, that's uh, yeah. yeah. It doesn't get any more extreme than that, as far as I'm concerned, both mentally and physically. And let's face it, um, those guys, before they give themselves those mental skills, they are physically gifted. Uh, sure. So, so they're making the most of those physical gifts. That you know, 
I, I recognized early on, I, I tried to become a really good rock climber. I kind of maxed out at 5'9", because I realized I wasn't physically set up for that. I'm not a gymnast. I'm, a, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm kind of a, uh, a heavier guy, and uh, I was never going to be a ballerina on the rock. So um, I reset my goals for tall peaks, which is what I could use my physical skills at. And I think that's what people have to do. If you aspire to something like that, you have to be – brutally honest with yourself i mean you know some people aren't meant for climbing 513 rock walls mm-hmm. and not everybody's made for getting to the top of mount everest either and, and so you have to kind of assess and try things out and get feedback and also get feedback from either a coach or friends or peers and and, and sort that out so it's a fun process that's what it was for me always a process how, how far can i push myself without killing myself and, and so, be realistic about it so you need mentors you need um you know people around you to nurture you and support you and tell you when you're really blowing it well without a doubt you know in every human endeavor whether it's learning to play the piano or getting a perfect tennis serve or you know you need a coach and and and, you know you i I left this out when we're talking about ways to motivate people sometimes it's a coach that does it really good personal trainers are just outstanding people to hang around with or have in your equation because they can tell you what you need honestly if they're the right kind of coach Mm -hmm. and for for just every endeavor you do you do need a coach so i'm i'm very much if you want to excel at something you can't do it it's hard to do it on your own very few people can yeah and i think stomp i would say like in your case, like, you know, we've got obviously like Casey and Jimmy and, and the crew of friends that we, we hang out with. And I feel like you'll, you've gone out of your comfort zone and like everybody sort of just circled around and said like, okay, we were, we, we sort of pushed it a little bit too hard there. And then you sort of contract a little bit and then you do sort of the next crazy thing. And then, you know, when you feel like you step a little bit too, too deep, it seems like you're, you know, you're especially with these bushwhacks that you do, like you, you are constantly finding a new way to challenge yourself within the whites. But at some point, we got to get you out of the whites mm-hmm. and, and get some challenges somewhere else. <laughs> I suppose the whites haven't failed to satisfy my uh, my lust for adventure. That's for sure. You know, it's funny. It's funny you say that, though, because, Martin, I'm getting the impression that you're an accomplished uh, technical climber and this and that. And honestly, for me, that's where I draw the line. I, you know, with Search and Rescue, I've seen too many accidents and injuries, technical climbing, you know, in reference to Search and Rescue that I've just made the personal decision that, you know what, I'm happy with my feet on the ground and I'm probably okay with not diving into climbing at this point. Um, you've done uh, you do that acceptance yourself, right? You're realistic with yourself, and it's also what you want. I mean, there's no yeah, it's not a con, it's not a contest, right? You're so yeah, good for you. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a journey for everybody. It's an individual journey. Yeah, and Martin, I definitely I want to get into some of this mountaineering experience that you've had in in, in Antarctica as well. But one other thing I wanted to cover from the book is so my my biggest personal fear is and i hope that like 15 20 years from now my kids aren't listening to this podcast and saying like oh wow dad's biggest fear came true but like my biggest fear is the sort of cognitive decline mm-hmm. uh, sort of a long extended cognitive decline into like alzheimer's or something like that so 
you and your book, you talk about this and I've, I've talked, I have a friend, my friend Tom and I love him, God bless him. But like, I always have said to Tom, like I joke around and say like, you know, your situational awareness is so much different than mine. Like we'll be running on the Esplanade and he's like Mr. Magoo and I'm like, you know, my head's on a swivel. So I've always felt like hiking and running (laughs) and cycling and those activities sort of give your sense of situational awareness in your brain a sharpness that you can't get otherwise. I almost liken it to like, you know, especially trail running when you're, um, you know, you're moving pretty quickly, you've got to make those split second decisions on where to place your feet. And it's like almost like a real live video game. And can you talk a little bit about how you feel like hiking activates your brain and and the benefits that that you get from that? Well, you're speaking to one of the core uh, breakthroughs of neuroscience in the last decade. Um, And it is absolutely doing what you think it's doing, Mike. Um, You're activating your brain because here's how it works. Um, There's a thing called neurogenesis. Our body makes brain cells as a normal human process. We used to think you were born with a finite number of brain cells and that you only could kill them by drinking mm-hmm. and boxing, right? Or and, and age. But no, at any age, Uh-oh. your body I'm makes brain cells. Now, here's the thing. Can you hear me? Yeah, Stomp, Stomp was just jumping in there saying, like, if, if brain cells get oh. killed by boxing and oh. drinking, he's oh, in yeah. big trouble. <laughs> I thought you couldn't hear me. That was the trouble. Okay, so but here, here's the good news, Stump. The fact is your brain is still making brain cells. You can rebuild it. It's a thing called neuroplasticity. And what happens is, and here's, here's what triggers it. If you regularly get your heart rate to 66% of max, your body creates a hormone called BDNF. It's called brain-derived neurotropic factor. That hormone travels through your bloodstream. It lands in your brain. It is the building block for new brain cells. Now, it doesn't automatically build your brain until you show it something to do, like cognitive challenge, cognitive load. That's either thinking, learning a new language, doing algebra, or giving it complex body movements to attach itself to, proprioception. When you, when you give your brain, your, your body, when your brain gives your body complex commands, like, as you just mentioned, trying to keep your balance on uneven terrain, uphill or downhill, your eyes, your balance, all your muscles keeping yourself upright are engaged in this rapid fire sensory process, which actually builds brain cells. Not only brain cells, but it builds neural pathways. Neural pathways are alignments of cells that control the way your body moves. Those neural pathways create a thing called cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve is basically extra brain power. And so the more cognitive reserve you have, and this has been studied in a famous studies all over the country, all over the world, the more cognitive reserve you have, the more you're capable of offsetting the decline of aging. Your brain actually can rebuild itself and you can survive um, even if you have Alzheimer's plaques in your brain, if you have more cognitive reserve, you're able to offset that. And to the, to, to the, to the, your normal behavior, your conversation, the way you behave will not change or will be diminished very slowly. So it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful thing. And I've been studying this. This is what my company does is we do a thing called uh, dual tasking, which challenges people above 50 to build their brains, right? And we've been studying this for a decade, 
to me, there's nothing better than hiking for doing dual tasking, which means it's the best brain exercise I've ever seen, which is why I call it the fountain of youth. Wow. Well, I'm all in on the hiking and I'm hoping that the research that you're doing and, and, and the concepts that you covered in the book are going to get me to, you know, what, what do you think? Like 95 healthy. And then I, I just dropped dead around a hundred or something like that. Is that, is that the, you know, is that the, fastest, the best case scenario, Martin? Fastest growing part of the population is people above 100 right now. Did you know that it's, it's uh, we're going <laughs> to number of people, centenarians are it's growing double digits. And that's because they're staying active, they're staying cognitively challenged, and people are starting to catch on to this. Be physically fit as you age. Um, did you know that half the population and two-thirds of the wealth are above age 50 now? And that particular demographic segment has reinvented many categories as it's passed through. And I'm expecting to see 70, 80-year-olds regularly exceed the limitations you know, that we, we thought 40 and 50-year-olds couldn't do you know i'll give you a perfect example when i first started getting interested in mount everest there was a period where if you were above 50 they might not let you do the trek into base camp much less climb the mountain 50 was okay. considered like the hurdle okay i just told you an 80 year old guy uh climbed it last year i went to base camp and above at age 64 at 18,000 feet, and that's not even unusual right now, not unusual at all. And I went there with the intent of training to climb Mount Everest this year. So the the, the limitations of age are, are being really crushed right now by a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I want to transition into some of your mountaineering adventures. So I think, can we, can you get into a little bit about your story about Mount Everest? Because I'm I'm fascinated. Like I, I've watched tons of documentaries and it's sort of always been on my list. Like I don't realistically think I would ever want to climb Mount Everest, but the idea of sort of the base camp trek from Kathmandu to base camp has always been appealing yeah. to me. When, when you, when you went to Everest, was your plan to actually summit or were you just doing the, the trek to base camp to sort of get a sense of what it's like? Okay. I got to give you some context. Um, when I was younger, I was right in the middle of that seven summits thing. All my friends were doing the seven summits, the tallest peak on each continent, right? I've got a lot of friends who have done all seven. I've done five. And Everest was always the elusive one because it's a big commitment, at, you know, three months off usually and, and a year's worth of training, which means pretty much you're going to isolate yourself from family and friends and then you're going to disappear for three months and you might get yourself in a lot of trouble. So it was always to me probably not. When I was in my prime 30s and 40s, I look back and I probably could have done it then. And then I, you know, you lost some of your skills and you do put on some, some age. And so I went back two years ago to, to base camp with the intent of seeing how my 64 year old body did at altitude to determine if it was worth the effort to try it at age 65 or age 66. And especially because, you know, now it's, I hate to say it, it's not as hard as it was 20 years ago. You know, it's, uh, it's yeah. pretty much every step of the way is known. You actually don't even need mountaineering skills anymore. You just need to how to use an ascender and pull yourself up on the rope. Truthfully, it's mm -hmm. become an endurance test more than a mountaineering challenge. And it's still brutally hard, but, you know, it's not about rope work. It's not about mountaineering skills. It's about hooking yourself into the rope and putting one foot in front of the other. And the weathering standing in place for 12 hours in the, in the yeah, that's, queue. That's actually turned me off a lot. Stop about it. It's no Absolutely. longer, it's no longer the, the wonderful adventure that I had in my mind when I was a kid watching 
you know, uh, Jim Whitaker and, and pals in 1963. It's no longer mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's uh, so. Anyway, that was the point was uh, I, I'd come so close to the seven summits. I knew I could do Karsten's. I haven't done that. But um, do I really want to finish the list? And so I went, I went with the intent of seeing if I would do well at altitude. And I did. I, I got a lung infection, you know, and I, I, so I didn't get a fair test. And I walked away uh, thinking, uh, I'm done with this. There's no chance. But that's always the way you feel. <laughs> you have to turn around. And now two years later, I'm thinking, Maybe I could, but I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to have the energy. And right now, I'm so busy at work. I, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to just give all that up and uh, and train for a year or two. And, and again, train for a year or two to stand in line going up the Lotsey face behind 85 other guys who paid fifty thousand dollars to a guide. So I, I don't. At this point, I don't think that's on my agenda. But you know what I discovered when I was at Everest this year? There's about a hundred destinations. That are freaking great peaks oh, yeah. to climb that are twenty to twenty three thousand feet, which is my you know my comfort zone, and a never ending amount of mountains right there under the under the crest of Everest. So it's a big world, and um, you know I you never run out of things to do. It doesn't have to be about getting to the tops of the biggest ones. Um, there's whole countries that are barely explored. Once you get off the beaten path, there's nobody there. Yeah, yeah, that's the same concept in the whites. Like, you know, once you get off the four the four thousand footers, there's a million different little peaks and things like yeah. that. So I can only imagine what the Himalayas are like. Now, did you did you stay at base camp or did you go through like the, the Kumbu Icefall or anything yeah, like I got, that? Or? I went to the icefall a little bit. Um I was with a, a group of Everest climbers actually who had been up there who were scouting it out for a future Everest trip. I was actually with Peter Hillary. Edmund Hillary's son. Okay. And it was magnificent because we actually called this trek uh, in the footsteps of Hillary. And it was, it was magnificent walking in with Peter because every step of the way was a story about him or his father as, as kids. And it was, you know, I'm a historian and I, and I love the history and the lore of the, the 1950s British expedition. So it was, it was like heaven for me, really, seriously. It wasn't, it wasn't even, I lost, I lost interest in the climb and the hike and, and just found it just so fascinating being there and listening to Peter and my friend Robert Mads Anderson, who's summited, I think, four times. No, um, no. So we walked in together with a great group of people, and it was just, it's just magnificent. And, and as I'm walking in, I saw two of the other peaks that have been on my must-do list for a long time. And I said, you know, I don't have to get to the top of Everest. These are these these will be totally sufficient if I go back. I have a I, question for you. Since you've been there, what's your take on recovery of, um, you know? hikers that are alive but unable to move or you know bodies this and that there's a lot of controversy lately about um how search and rescue applies to those higher summits what do you what's your take on that well you know it sounds cruel but until you've been depleted by high altitude i don't mm -hmm. think you can appreciate how impossible it is to carry somebody down from the high peaks from sure. 29,000 feet, from 28,000 feet. It just can't be done. Uh, it can't be done in real time. You could go back and retrieve a body with a lot of people and a lot of resources, but everybody up there is on the edge of what they're capable of, even the Sherpas. I mean, you know, some of them with full oxygen and they've been up there 10 times. They're very depleted. You know You know what you notice when you get at altitude like that? You know your hair mm -hmm. stops growing, your fingernails stop growing, you stop digesting food. 
you're dying above 25,000 feet. When you're sitting there in those tents on the South Pole at 26,000 feet, your body is eating itself alive. So it's a survival issue. And every if you think you can rescue somebody without endangering your own life, I mean, it sounds really cruel, every man for himself. And at times you can help right. somebody, but it, yeah, I've been depleted at 23,000 feet where I couldn't move. And, and so I can only imagine being on the summit ridge trying to rescue someone. I just don't see how it can be done in real time. I think most people understand that they're going into that with that possibility. Um, and I suppose it comes down to the expectations that these guide companies set when you're heading out. I think legally you could attest to this, that uh, the guide companies have to do that and they have parameters that they have to work in. Um, is that the case? Yeah. Um, everybody knows they're going into a potentially fatal situation. There's no question about it. But, you know, you get summit fever and you're depleted and you just don't think right. I mean, even, you know, you know you'd be totally wasted in the White Mountains and your brain isn't capable of making good decisions. Imagine being oxygen deprived for a month and you're just not all there. Right. And your guides have to take care of of you that's their primary obligation yeah what, what troubles me about the whole circumstance there now guys is um the people signing up for these expeditions have not gone through the layer by layer preparation to get themselves there some people have done all right maybe i've climbed mount rainier four times and now i'm going to sign up for an everest expedition because i happen to have sixty thousand dollars as a microsoft vice, vice president i can i can pay for it but, yeah, yeah. you know, that's so risky, not knowing how your body's going to behave at altitude, not having the, the mountaineering experience on smaller peaks. And there's talk now of, of making sure that before they allow anybody to go on an Everest expedition, that they have to show them that they've climbed, I think it's a 6,000-meter or a 7,000-meter peak before to demonstrate that they've at least got some capability of, of surviving up there, not creating a liability for themselves and others. Yeah, I would think like somebody that's not experienced, it's dropping 60 grand on a guide and they're stepping away from their life for two or three months. Like the, the, especially people that are really sort of, you know, driven personalities, like they, they're going to cross that risk line without even thinking twice. So right. um, it's an interesting time, but, but Martin with the, and again, I'm not that interested in ever doing like Mount Everest, but for me, like the, the idea of tr um, trekking the base camp and going through sort of the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the country to get to base camp from Kathmandu is very interesting. Did you, did you do that? Did you go the full way from Kathmandu to base camp or how well, did you Kathmandu, get there? Kathmandu, you fly into a place called Lukla. It's okay. The, it's the Hillary airstrip, Hillary Tenzing airstrip, actually named after Edmund and then Tenzing Norgay. First, sure a little airstrip on a, on a cliff, basically. It's thought of as the most dangerous airport in the world because there's lots of accidents. And there was one while we were there, strangely enough. And um, But we walked from there. And from there, Lukla to base camp is about 50 miles, I think. So we did a 50 mile in, 50 mile out. Okay. So you can actually get closer to base camp. I always had it in my head that you had to fly into like the main city and it was like a one week trip. Yeah, to well, like when the Americans on Everest 1963 expedition did it, they did have to walk from Kathmandu. It was like a month long trek and uh, maybe even longer. And, but you know, the funny thing is those guys were super fit by the time they got there. Oh yeah. So, so that was uh, an interesting 
uh, process of getting themselves fit by you know, basically walking you know, 4,000, 5,000 vertical feet per day. And it's not easy walking through there. I mean, you really should do it. it. I mean, the White Mountains are actually a great preparation for it because of the ruggedness. It's rugged like that. Uh, and it's beautiful country, um, possibly to my liking, a little too crowded now and maybe a little too connected, meaning there's Internet service and cell phone service the whole way, which <laughs> I found very disconcerting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the yeah. other place I, I really wanted to talk to you about that you talked about in your book was the Matterhorn. Sure. Um, and the reason I've always been fascinated with the Matterhorn is probably like, I don't know, three, four years ago, there was like this viral video that went went through YouTube and different different social medias and uh, media sites. And it was like this guy that was just going across the very top of the Matterhorn. And it was like this chunk of snow that he was walking across that just, and I think the camera angles, like those, those GoPro cameras make everything look a lot more narrow than they actually are. But it was like so freaky to me. Um, did you actually get all the way to the top of the Matterhorn or did you just get up to like Hornley Hut or can, can you no, talk no, a little I've bit about that? I've climbed it to the summit five times. I've been on that ridge and I have to tell you, I saw that video and I thought it, it was just ludicrously exaggerated in terms of the narrowness of the ridge. Yeah. I unroped. When I got to the top each time, I unroped and I walked along that ridge without a, he a moment's hesitation, not feeling, feeling like I was on the, on the, literally balancing on, on a tightrope. It doesn't feel that way when you're there. Okay. Um, it is a magnificent place, and uh, the first time I went there to the summit, I got totally addicted to the, I don't know whether it's spiritual or the energy or the vibes I was getting from it, but it really was. You know, they say energy concentrates at the top of some pointy mountains. <laughs> it did for me, and it brought me back there four times. And do you take the same, like, do you take the same route where you get to the, the Hornley Hut and then ascend from there, and, and how technical is it to actually get to the top? Well, uh, Hornley Head is a hike, and yeah. I've been to that four times. I did it from the Italian side once. It was harder from the Italian side. It's interesting. Okay. The rock slopes differently. Um, Matterhorn is uh, the way the rock stratifies. It makes it harder from the Italian side. It's crumbling, but it's crumbling less on the Italian side. Anyway, so yeah, the, the, the route from uh, the Hornley Ridge is the Hornley Head is called the Hornley Ridge. It's a crumbling mass of, of rock. And it, Maybe I can, the analogy is, it's like climbing Huntington Ravine 10 times. It's okay. kind of, it's a little steeper in places, but it's like ten doing times. Huntington Ravine 10 times. It's 5,000 vertical feet. And uh, there are places where the exposure is really extreme. I mean, you know, you could fall 2,000 feet straight down the ridge. But, um, but the climb itself is about a 5.7, 5.5 rock climb at best. There's places where you don't need your hands. There's places where there's a couple of fixed ropes already built in because they're bottlenecks otherwise, and you pull yourself up. Yeah. So as climbs go, at this point, it isn't even particularly difficult. Um, if you're super fit and you've got your brain trained not to be in fear of heights, and, you, and you're real comfortable on rock, it's magnificent, magnificent. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the last area that I wanted to ask you about was um, Antarctica. So um, how do you get there? And can you talk a little bit about what you did when you got there? Yeah, well, uh, I, this during my seven summits phase and Vincent Massif, Mount Vincent is the, one of the key summits. It's yeah. the, the least climbed, actually, because it is so hard to get to. I so can imagine. In my case, you know, I, I got on a plane at JFK. 
I flew to Miami. I flew to Santiago, Chile. I flew to Punta Arenas, Chile, and we boarded a, a plane uh, called the Ice Princess in Punta Arenas, and it flew us across the Antarctic Ocean, landed in a place called Patriot Hills, which is a black ice airstrip. And then we got on a twin otter, a little Arctic, Antarctic plane and flew to the Vincent range. So yeah, a lot of planes, <laughs> it took a long time to get there. So, but it was, it was, that's, that is the appeal of it is it's a very isolated, difficult, infrequently climbed mountain. And I did it in, I think, 1992, November 1992, November, December. And when I did it, I was the 123rd person to stand on the summit. So that tells you how infrequently it is, was climbed before then. It's a logistical challenge. Not many people go there. Now, when you get dropped off at the at the final airstrip, from the point where you get dropped off to the time that you summit and get back, like how many days are you talking to to make that happen? Let's say it was twenty days. We were on the ice by ourselves, and it wasn't an airstrip. It's a, a twin, a twin otter with skis. Okay, it's really fun. Really fun to land on skis. That's the way they do it in Alaska as well. It's the same kind of planes that fly in Alaska and the North Pole. Um, those pilots actually, you know, migrate from the South Pole to the North Pole with the with the sun. So it's the same guys. But and back then, did you have like a satellite phone where you could, if something really went south, you, could you call them or how, how did communication work? No satellite phone. We had a radio that communicated with Patriot Hills, which was about 200 miles away. And we actually, unfortunately, one of my, one of my climbing buddies, his dad died and they, they got him a message by, by radio. But no, there wasn't satellite phones back then. It was 92, 93. Now there are, you know, now I, I my guy went to Everest a couple of years ago with uh, literally is posting on Instagram from base camp last year. So, I mean, it's just it's all different. Wow. It's all different. Wow. So you've been all over the place, man. Like stop. This yeah. guy's like an animal. <laughs> well, you know, that, that I was very driven in my 20s, 30s and 40s to do the seven summits. And as a result, you know, you, you become... Um, you know, it's a very goal-driven behavior. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not that way now. I'm very serene about all this stuff now. You know, I don't have that kind of intensity. And, and I've lost the mental edge and maybe a little bit of the physical edge too because I'm just not out there doing it, training the way I used to. But, yeah. um, you know, you're kind of like in the zone at, at a point. It's probably like, stop, like, it's sort of like what you talked about too, is like, it's it's sort of the equivalent of like the ultra athletes that push it too hard. Like if they don't know when to style it back, then the long game gets mm. lost. So Martin, you're probably like doing this because like, you know, if you kept pushing this and tried to do like Everest when you weren't, you know, you sense sort of like maybe it's not, not within your your comfort zone like you push it too hard and you end up being like one of those guys that you were talking about that you just can't get them down off the mountain so um it's probably well, a good know, call you, you work within your limits part of what slowed me down guys is i you know i had i have two kids and um, my daughter was born i i just it, it kind of slowed me down a little bit it just changed me you know and uh that's when i started slowing down I, my son was different because i wanted him to come with me i mean he was 13 i took him to kilimanjaro and we did rock climbing in Boulder, and I, I turned him into a mini-me. Different with my daughter. For some reason, she didn't like that, and but I didn't want to kill myself at that point. So I started to slow down, you know? And yeah, also, no, this you know, work. Work got busy. I, you know, I never really quit. I never really... 
I never really gave it everything. Some of my climbing guy, for friends you know, who've done Everest multiple times, or some, or many the, the the fourteen. I got some friends who've done the fourteen eight thousand meter peaks. They gave up everything else in their lives: family, friends, jobs. And I never, I never put it. I never did it that much. I never put it out there that far. Got it. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting life, and and the the book is great. Again. You know, I really enjoyed reading it. It's called um, Martin Pisani, Secrets of Aging Well, Get Outside. And the whole concept is around how hiking is the fountain of youth. And, you know, I'm definitely in agreement with a lot of the themes and a lot of the points that you made. And I th- I just want to tell the audience, like Martin is not sort of, uh, you know, the, the concepts that he's talking about. I've been sort of in the corporate HR world for many years and, you know, probably about 10, 12 years ago, like if you went back, like there was never this idea of sort of having a wellness division within a company, but more and more you see big companies have these larger wellness divisions. So companies are buying into this idea as well that like they want to make sure that they're doing preventative and not just waiting for a pill to solve everything. So hiking is something that I think is is definitely a, a path to, um, you know, maintaining that wellness for a long period of time. So, Martin, it's 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 been great talking with you. Is there any other um, anything you want to plug or, or anything else you want to talk about before we? And I want you to stick around. We got we got a search and rescue that we got to talk about, and we want to talk a little bit about Mount, Mount, uh, White Mountain history too. Yeah, you know, the, the, whenever I do these, <laughs> I, I just like to remind people that you can take charge of the way you age, and it's all up to you. I mean, you're, it, it's in control. Some of it's genetics, but if you stay active and physically fit, chances are you can live a happier, healthier, longer life. That's that's my message, and that's what the book is about. It's not about climbing Mount Everest. It's about the, the, the baby steps to get you to a happier, healthier, longer life. Yeah, mm. no, it's, it's a great book, and I'll make sure that I uh, – Put the details in the show notes, and I'll, I'll I can coordinate with you to plug anything else in the show notes that you want me to put in there. Awesome, cool. All right, so uh, we want to. I wanted to cover two more things, and again, Martin, stick around, and, and you can hop in if if anything comes up you want to talk about. But the first thing I want to talk about, Stomp, is there was a there was a um, incident on Mount Cardigan. Uh, not Carrigan, not Kerrigan, about um, a search and rescue that we didn't cover in the last episode. And, and unfortunately, this was a, a hiker fatality. So mm-hmm. um, this happened, I think, going back on July 26th or 27th, where there was some sort of an incident. I don't know if it was a... I don't know exactly what happened, but there was an incident where um, a hiker was found unconscious and not breathing. Uh, there was some hikers on the scene that tried to um, do C- perform CPR, um, but when emergency crews did o- arrive, they pronounced the hiker um, as dead, and they had to um, you know do do a carry out of the body, um, and it was a quite a long carry out. I think about nine hours. They said for uh, for them to get the body out through steep rough terrain so yeah so unfortunately we didn't get a chance to cover that one with um with chris from solo but um, that that's the only search and rescue that i've i've had this week that i've seen yeah i mean those are most of the details um unconscious hiker uh we had fishing game bartlett fire u.s forest service solo lakes region search and rescue helped out um Apparently, they tried CPR, 
um, by the hikers, actually. The hikers initiated CPR on the unconscious hiker. That was terminated by EMS personnel. And um, Signal Ridge is tough. I mean, that's like, that's a 10-mile round trip. So it took about nine hours to carry the uh, deceased out. Uh, it's a long day. It's tough for everybody, rescuers and family. Yeah, I can imagine. I know on um, social media, one of the one of the folks that one of the hikers that was on scene did mention. You know, she she didn't give a lot of details just for the sort of out of respect for the family, but she did mention that you know she was there and one of the folks that had sort of tried to help out at the scene. But um, unfortunately, you know, Martin, I know as much as we talk about sort of this idea of sort of. Um, anti-aging you know we also talked about like you, you can't control everything and sometimes medical issues happen and you know there's, there's not much you can do about it so you you want to make the best of life as in every moment you can couldn't agree more and i think that's one of the reasons we do these things right i mean we're trying to live life as opposed to uh you know there's that uh fear of missing out thing that's going around social media you know i i i think uh, uh i think it's formal yeah i i like to think the opposite phobia uh, which is uh the joy of being outside is what offsets that is, is there's just an awful lot of joy to be had by being out there so jobo i call it jobo yeah exactly. yeah yeah exactly finding those like there's not as many of them as there used to be but like finding those corners of the whites where there's no cell connection and no temptation to grab your phone so um good point Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? Dumb stump. I wanted to move on to uh, last subject here. So you, I think it was like two or three episodes ago, we were talking about um, who's that guy? English Jack, the um, the Hermit of Crawford, Cro- the Hermit of yeah. Crawford Notch. So remember, we were talking about how right. he worked for the P and O Railroad, and you were like, "Is it the Portland and Oregon Railroad?" Yes. I did a little bit of research yeah. for you. I thought it was. Yeah. It's not. Okay. It is the Portland and Ogdensburg Railroad. So Ogdensburg, New York is in the Great oh, Lakes. interesting. So P&O huh. Railroad was set up to connect from Portland, Maine to the Great Lakes. And it also was basically the, when they put the P&O Railroad in place, that was the first time that you could actually come up from Boston to the White Mountains in a day. And I think for them, a day meant like probably it was probably about a 20-hour trip from Boston to get up to Portland and then take the railroad. Yeah. Um, but it was Portland and Ogdensburg. And mm. this was an important railroad because um, I guess it was chartered in 1867. And again, the, the focus was to connect Portland, Maine to Ogdensburg, New York, which would connect the Great Lakes to the seacoast. And over time, the section that we probably care about the most in Crawford Notch, um, I think, happened in. So the track from Portland reached Conway in 1871, and then it reached Bartlett in 1873. And I don't know, you know, Martin, you talked about how you had carried out um, wow. on Frankenstein. I don't know if it's the same exact path that it follows right now, but it finally hit Crawford Notch. So they call it, Crawford Notch is, it's known as Fabian, I guess, which is right where Brenton Woods is. But it reached it reached that Brenton Woods area in 1875. And from there, it, um, 
you know, it eventually connected through in 1876 to Ogdensburg, and that's when sort of the floodgates opened up in the White Mountains and where, where the tourists um, really were able to access the White Mountains in a day. And I think, Martin, it was probably at that period where a lot of those huge resort hotels that you were talking about where most of them had burned down were all started to, you know, they were, they were built around that time or maybe a little bit before or after. Well, now I know why uh, that restaurant wow. down there is called Fabian's, right? Obviously, that's right, right. obviously attributed to that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Fabian, that's like right where Brenton Woods is, and that's yeah. where, um, you know, the first train arrived there on August 7th in, um, it looks like, 1875. And that's that's pretty much when, you know, Crawford Notch and the White Mountains cracked open to um, – to tourism, and there was a guy, Dr. Samuel Bemis, who owned all of that property, and he was a big sort of gung ho, like let's get the let's get the railroad in here. So he sold all of his land to um, to give easements to the railroad for like a dollar, and he had the construction crews living in his uh, Crawford Tavern, and he was the guy that really focused on getting that railroad put in place. So, hmm. Rowdy, rowdy times. Yeah. So that answers that question, Stomp. Now you know it's Ogdensburg. Huh. So, and I think so I like think a the one to one ratio, isn't it? It's like a one mile per year. Well, I don't know. That's I mean, some hard work, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like I'm assuming going through, like from Bartlett up to oh, Brenton Bartlett. Woods is is a huge like you know, elevation gain. So I'm sure it wasn't easy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's amazing. That's at least what, 10 miles. Yeah, exactly. And just talking about how we were talking about Kerrigan before is that's right around the time where Livermore was at its largest number. To, it was like two, 300 people. So when you hike into Mount, Mount Kerrigan on the left-hand side is where the remains of Livermore are. So have, have yeah. you ever seen Livermore before stop? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Ghost town. Yeah, exactly. So there you go, Stomp. You, you got your little history lesson is Ogdensburg instead of Oregon. <laughs> I thought of, I thought for sure it was going to be Oregon, but oh, well. But this is good stuff. So Martin, thanks again for joining us. And uh, I guess that's me. it. We'll call it a wrap. Awesome. You guys are doing some good stuff. Really enjoy it. And thanks for having me. Thanks, Martin. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. 
And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.